Hello, welcome back to Slightly Foxed and a new year of literary podcasts about lost and forgotten books. Now, after an energetic Christmas, we have decided to begin 2022 in leisurely fashion. Today, in company with two distinguished magazine editors, Tom Hodgkinson of The Idler and Harry Mount of The Oldie, we'll be strolling through fiction in search of notable literary loafers. My name is Philippa Lamb and Foxed editor Gail Perkis is here with me. Hello. As is fellow Fox Stephanie Allen. Hello. Let's meet today's guest, Tom Hodgkinson of The Idler, Harry Mount of The Oldie. Welcome both. Hello. Thank you very much. Hello. Do we have any New Year's resolutions on the reading front? I do. I want to get rid of some books. You say this every year. I know, I know and I, I've got to brace up. During lockdown, I failed dismally. I, I cleared everything else in the house out, but not the books, and we're just swamped. For anyone who hasn't seen pictures of Gail's beautiful bookshelves on Instagram, I mean, we're all smiling at the yes, idea well, of getting are, rid of them. There are too many of them. They've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have that problem, surely. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've instituted a one-in, one-out policy. So as I bring have one you in, really? yes, I've now reached capacity on my bookshelves. I and, can't do that. But do, yeah. but do you have a, a partner who has different reading tastes and therefore makes a claim for every book you want to get rid of? I'm a fantastically selfish bachelor, so I don't, I don't ah, have that problem. OK, you're lucky. Yes, um, I, have I, have, I have that with my husband every sounds time. great. You're so lucky, Harry, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely ruthless if I do bring a book in and because I'm sure you do as well Tom at my office you get a huge amount of books mm. which you can um, take home for free mm. but I only bring home a few brilliant ones and then get rid of a boring book I haven't read for yes. well years. that's what I need to do all those biographies of minor characters which I've had for 20 years and I'm never going to read yeah they're going do you just like having them there though even if you know you're never going to read them yes. somehow there's something about having the book depends, on the shelf in it case it depends what it is I mean I, I use my books as a reference library a lot, but even so. And as soon as you're double shelving, that's a nightmare. So if you've got one set of books obscured by another oh, yeah. set. Yes, hopeless, yeah. hopeless. That's you've got to be able to see them. Forbidden, yes. What about piling? Do you have any actual piles? Yes. Rather than yes, I have we... got one pile which yeah. I don't like. But On Zoom, we met Elif Shafak the novelist and all her books were in piles not lined neatly on the shelf. All Gosh. her books? I was quite shocked, yeah. Yes, she doesn't have small uh, children or dogs. No. no, she likes the mess. I wish I had not. Creatively yeah. stimulating. Yeah. Mm. And you can build from them. I do actually have a <laughs> table of books. Yeah, because not the, a, a pile of books can be yeah. a shelf prop. Yeah. You can go mad. A friend of my parents, her sitting room was filled up with one great cube of books that filled the middle of the room, and then you shuffled around the edge. But how does can... that work? You can't get at the ones except... Oh, OK. okay, okay. <laughs> so moving on, yeah. um, t- today, as I mentioned, we're looking at loafers in fiction. So these are the uh, the flaneur, the loungers, the fritterers of time. And uh, Tom, this is this is home turf for you, isn't it? The, the idler focuses on, on the joys of not using our time. OK, and that is the newest member of the Slightly Fox Dog tribe, Dusty, who I think is now just on her way out. So that we can um, proceed. To, sorry, Tom. Cat, cats are more of a sort of idler pet. I Entirely think, agree. Yes. Uh, Dr. Johnson had a cat called Hodge. Uh, one time he was told probably by you know Boswell or somebody like that that there was a group of ruffians going around shooting cats, uh, probably quite near here in Clerkenwell. And he said, they shall not have Hodge. No, they shall not have Hodge. There's a statue to Hodge, isn't there, in one of the... There is, yeah, the just off Fleet Street by his yeah. house, yeah, in Gough Square. But yeah, Dr Johnson was the inspiration for it. He was very productive but incredibly lazy. 
Is that right? Yep, he used to lie in bed until sort of two or three, not doing anything. And then after lunch, instead of working, he would do chemistry experiments. So if you went to see him at sort of 4pm, he'd be covered in soot. And no one knew actually when he got his work done. We must discuss this further. Before we do, I want to ask Harry about the oldie magazine. So for people who don't know it, how would you sum it up? Well, it was set up almost 30 years ago. Next year is our 30th anniversary by the great Richard Ingrams, who, of course, was the first, well, practically the first editor of Private Eye. And it was an attempt to fight the youth culture then as now. The feeling was that advertisers and newspapers and magazines devoted themselves to young people who more and more now read less books and papers, but also advertisers were appealing to them when they weren't buying any of their stuff. So it's uh, it's become more of a general interest magazine with book reviews, gardening, restaurants, but I'd say it has a kind of anarchic, cynical, ironic spirit, which I don't know if you'd agree, Tom, it's shared by The Idler and Private Eye in bits of The Telegraph. It's that particular feel. And I think it does have a connection, like The Idler tries to at least, with that 18th century wit thing, you know, of people like Johnson. Um, and earlier in the 18th century, we had Addison and Steele who started things like The Spectator and The Tatler. Because so. I could see how, as people age, there is more time for idling but I mean does Lofie feature much? Well oldies have a lot more spare time obviously because a lot of them are retired and they're very keen to use it profitably Uh, so they love going on tours they tend to be pretty well educated the readers but there's a real lust for knowledge and also for a good time we have these literary lunches there's there's very little disapproval and it's wonderful to live in that world where you could say what you want and also where your readers are very well informed oh, i think it's all the chimes are rather beautifully slightly false well it's it? all yeah. yes it's it's also about not being fashionable and up to the minute isn't it which is exactly what um, we look at in in books yes the whole lost and forgotten yeah idea exactly, exactly i mean i know you two would argue that idlers are featured in in fiction or writing since the earliest days yeah i, I would say then as now the greatest writers, first of all, had the um, spare time to write, but also the spare time to read with all of us obsessed with our phones nowadays. I think the, the greatest writers I meet now, my heroes like Ian Wilson, are reading the whole time. So I think throughout history, to be a good writer, you need to read a lot. And that, that means having a lot of spare time, either because you're very rich or in ancient Rome, they depended very much on having patrons. But you needed some cash to be free or not minding being completely broke the ancient uh, idea of the uh, completely broke loafer, particularly in literary world, continues. The very earliest examples you might summon up? I would probably go back a little bit further to ancient Greece, wouldn't you, Harry, to Athens? I mean, because for me, the invention of philosophy in the sort of 3rd, 4th century BC, that was a form of idling, philosophy. The the word hadn't really existed before Socrates apparently invented the word. It was a neologism then. It meant love of wisdom, philosophos. And Socrates said, you know, I'm not a wise person, I don't really know anything, but I do like wisdom and I'd like to move towards it. I love it. And so they invented this idea that you could devote a lot of your life not to knowing things, but to sort of wanting to know things um, and sort of moving towards wisdom. And this was what Plato said about Socrates. So for me, Socrates was the original literary loafer. He was extremely lazy and that he didn't actually write anything down. He couldn't even be bothered sometimes to get dressed properly he went around barefoot he had a big beard he had a cloak he didn't dress properly sort of cast off ideas of fashion and uh, and he just wandered around annoying people he was married to Xanthippe and they had a son Xanthippe found him even more annoying than other people because he didn't earn any money so she would give him a sort of empty plate at dinner to <laughs> give an idea of the household income 
But it, through his laziness, extraordinarily, a little tiny bit Christ-like maybe, he launched at least six philosophical schools at the Epicureans, the Stoics and so on, but really just sat around drinking and talking <laughs> and nonsense, talking. which is <laughs> oldies and idlers love to do it. It's space and time, isn't it, to think? Well, exactly, and the philosophers told the people of ancient Athens, you need to make space for philosophy and time. It's fun, and also it's therapeutic. So, you know, philosophy was invented as a sort of response to widespread anxiety in ancient Athens, which was more or less perpetually at war with with other city-states like Sparta, and had their own political problems, you know, tyrants coming in. They had a form of democracy, but it was quite sort of fluid. You know, people were sort of wandering around feeling quite worried, and philosophy as an idea was more like self-help. It addressed that feeling of anxiety. And they told people, if you don't want to be... Aristotle later and Plato and the Stoics and the Epicureans, you know... If you don't want to be anxious, don't worry too much about your work. That's not the most important thing in your life. We need to work to make money. But, you know, more important than that is your leisure time, which they call scully, which turned into our word for school. So they said it's in your leisure time or your scully that you should go and educate yourself and wander around in the olive groves and drink wine and talk nonsense. And you need to have a a certain level of intelligence and respect for intelligence with all those things. So, in fact, you can go today, I've been there in Athens, to the site of the original academy, which still amazingly, Plato's Academy, is still a park only about a mile's walk from the Parthenon. Sadly, it's very run down now, Mm. full of graffiti and lots of charming drunks, I imagine, talking rubbish. They might be talking very (laughs) high-level stuff, but you need to have a a sea in which you swim of intelligence, Mm. and and that's part of the the miracle of 5th-century Athens, which no-one can really explain how it all came together. I'm liking the fact that we've got to establish, I think, beyond doubt, that idleness isn't necessarily a bad thing and can be very productive. I think one of you... One of you is a big fan of The Complete Angler, is it you, Tom? Well, that's a lovely book, Isaac Walton, and, and it was a huge seller at the time. 1590s, he was born, like, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, there, there, there are, yes, it's a book apparently in praise of fishing, but it's actually a sort of political tract, really. It's very anti-Puritan. We're looking at why idling started to be sort of frowned upon as a sort of waste of time, then... You can go back to things like the Reformation first and then the sort of the rise of Puritanism and alongside it the rise of a new sort of of work ethic, which was actually quite different from the way people viewed work in the Middle Ages. And Isaac Walton, you know, he was saying the great thing about fishing is that it combines activity and inactivity. So he says since probably Hesiod, you know, people have been arguing what's the best life to lead? Is it the contemplative life, like a monk or... The active life, like, like a soldier or a merchant or a politician. And Isaac Walton says, well, fishing is wonderful because it sort of combines the two. You know, it's mainly doing nothing with this occasional burst of activity if you do actually catch a fish. But as most fishermen will say, anglers, fishing isn't about catching a fish. It's about sitting there in nature doing nothing like a sort of a Chinese sage and quite often in the book he allows himself these little asides attacks on Puritans who he calls sour-faced money-getting men who want us to, to work very hard so it's it's a very lovely book and it's, it's very easy to read now it's in a sort of dialogue form. I've always thought fishing was also largely about getting away from your family isn't it? Well I think it's about solitude yeah um, and it is, it is very male. Yeah well also I think for men buying all the kit <laughs> well, that's the other thing, yeah. It's, it's a pretend activity, isn't it? But what's the essence of it? The essence of it is sitting there motionless, staring at water. Yes. There's a very good fact that at the end of the war, there was a massive boom in the sale of sheds because these heroic men came back from the war. Lovely to see their beautiful wife and children, but soon got quite irritated by them. And so immediately bought a shed and took up either fishing or model railways or whatever it might be. But 
they needed somewhere else to go. See, the idling as a, as a means of getting away from your family made me think about Montaigne. He's a little bit ahead of Isaac Walton, I think, wasn't he? Because he entirely... Well, he had his own tower, didn't he? Yeah, his he wife did. had the other tower. Tell us about Montaigne. <laughs> well, it's funny to remember that Montaigne's actually a contemporary of Shakespeare because actually when you read Montaigne, he sounds so sort of modern and he's known as sort of the first essayist. Essay means to test out an idea. And he wrote these sort of like, I don't know what you would call them, little useless skits like, you know, On My Cat... And, I have uh, not read these, so is, I had imagined they were on higher-minded things than that. Okay, they're not. No, okay. he talks about all sorts of things, you know. When yeah. I play with my cat, how do I know that I'm playing with my cat or my cat might think that he's playing with me? Okay. A little philosophical reflection the there. Great little one-liners yeah. he has, doesn't he? Which is a thing that goes all the way back to Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And that still goes on a bit. My predecessor at the old, Richard Ingram's, had a very good, this more of a commonplace book, but lots of little chunks of brilliant little thoughts which are a great pleasure to read it's very easy to read Montaigne isn't it because Montaigne I was was having a look he was 38 when he went retired into this tower as I understand it but he was retreating wasn't he from the religious wars I mean partly an act of you know preserving his sanity and indeed his life because he had 1500 books I believe, which, which is a lot, lot of books. Yeah. 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 He was yeah. quite well off as well. You know, yes, I think indeed. He, he had a sort of private income. But there's a brilliant book by Sarah Bakewell about him called How to Live. And I think he had more or less a sort of stoic philosophy. Well, I have actually been to his house, which is fantastic. So there are different levels of idling. It's a huge, massive house near yes. Bordeaux with fantastic views. And it's easy being a highly intelligent idler when you're living that sort of life as opposed to that brilliant George Orwell essay on writing book reviews and the misery of sitting there in your dressing gown with a hangover. in Kentish Town where I live. There are different levels of being an idler and it is, it's easier if you're living in yes. a massive and, chateau. And you've got border. staff to produce yeah. meals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and so a wife who apparently doesn't bother you and lives in a different tower. I think we are clear there's an economic basis for all the fortunate loafers throughout history. But Samuel Johnson you were talking about earlier, I had imagined he was an energetic man. But no. Well, he's known as very productive because, of course, he wrote the first proper English dictionary. But even that, he got the commission and he said it would take three years and it took nine years. He wrote that with a big band of assistants, six or seven assistants. He was renting a house in Gough Square, which we mentioned earlier. He, he, he was WFH, definitely, working from home. And the top floor was given over to these amenuencies or whatever you would call them, who sort of read other books and wrote words down. So yes, he did put his dictionary, but he he did it for money. He said famously the definition for lexicographer in his dictionary is a harmless drudge. (laughs) So so he sort of, he knew it was just kind of work. But if you read his own journals, and and in fact his, his column, The Idler, which is where we got the name from, which was written for about two years, he writes about his own laziness is he's sort of constitutionally idle found it very very difficult to get out of bed in the morning and often wouldn't get up until two we know this because he would resolve to get up earlier at certain times in his life at easter or christmas or on his birthday he would say whether he's 25 or 55 he would be saying next year i resolve henceforward to rise at eight he would say because even if i only actually get up at 10 that's still two hours earlier than i commonly do lie in because i commonly do lie till 12 or even later so, but did uh, it work it late, though? I mean, did but it... then he would work very quickly. So w- w- the principle of the idler, which he outlined in these columns, was the principle of momentum. He said he's like a heavy body, which moves with a violence proportionate to its own weight. In other words, the longer you're doing nothing before the deadline, all freelance hacks will know this, Harry will know this, you know, the quicker you write the piece. So let's say the deadline was 5pm. He would sit down at about 4 or 4.30 and write one draft. The printer's boy would be running up from the slightly foxed office uh, and would take the piece of paper and then run down to the printer and then he would have to run back for the next page. He didn't even read over them, but they were brilliant. And people said when he spoke, he was so articulate that he spoke like a second edition. 
Mm. I think that's partly because of his idleness, you know. Because so, he'd had time to ponder. Yeah, I, I bet, yes. And I bet read. I know that thing. I console myself with this when I used to be freelance and spend a lot of time hanging around the London Library putting off writing books or articles. But actually, quite often, the books you're reading for entertainment or whatever, they eventually it's, are useful in some way. Or idea. my yes. happiest moment of the day is I spend an hour in the morning reading the the papers, which is absolute bliss, but actually, in a very indirect way, it's work. I then might have to write an article about, you know, Paris Hilton's Chihuahuas or something, which I've been reading about. <laughs> do you read the, Do you read the newspapers in bed, Harry, or do you read them? No, I read them in the bath. In the bath, in the, bath. In the morning, yeah. Bath, morning bath. Yes. With the papers. Yeah, I read, I'm afraid I read them on my phone, but it's I'm very, very happy, and it's my most concentrated bit of reading. And during also the very day. clean, presumably. And very, very clean. Very Don't clean. drop the phone there. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. No, I've got it's got a little shelf, but did you have it specially built? No. <laughs> it's one of those things you normally keep the soap in. John Lennon apparently had a pair of glasses that were specially made for him that allowed him to lie in bed completely flat and watch TV at the same time, a sort of prism. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but I think you said it earlier on, Tom, but actually a good writing or working life is lots of idleness punctuated with work, and that idleness might be reading, or you've got a very good article in your November-December issue of The Idler about the joy of commuting, and I bike to and from work with a kind of 15-20 minute bike ride each way. And Rachel Kelly wrote this article about the therapeutic effects. It helps that it's through Regent's Park, but it completely Freeze changes my mood. And I'm doing absolutely nothing, yeah. I'm afraid, occasionally listening to music. But it's really good and completely sort of set up for work when I turn up. OK, so I'm listening to this and, um, and it is dawning on me, as everyone else, I'm sure, this is all men. Have there been female literary loafers or is it something women don't do? Well, there are far more men, it's true. However, there, there are women loafers. They're perhaps not so well recorded. And the story I'm about to tell is, is semi-mythical anyway. But the person who actually inspired Socrates to invent philosophy was a high priestess called Diotima, if you believe the um, Plato's Symposium. <laughs> Plato's Symposium is a lovely drama or dialogue with a bunch of high-up literary folk, in, like Aristophanes in Athens, drinking and talking about love and Eros. And when it comes to Socrates' turn, he says, oh, I learned everything I know about love from Diotima, who is the temple priestess, where you go to listen to the Delphic Oracles. She was one of these semi-sex priestesses that they had, um, in a way I don't quite understand. (laughs) So there was a bit of a doubler entendre when Socrates said, well, Diotima taught me all I know about love, you know. Uh, But it, it was Diotima who told him, which is the basis of Platonic philosophy, really, the best way to live is in the contemplation of the beautiful and the true. So there were these priestesses, and I think religion has been a way for women to have a life which has been not domestic. So, you know, obviously in, in this country, until the Reformation, we had the option of being a nun. There still is a bit of an option for that. Nun's life sounds quite tough, but there would have been a lot of time for meditation and reading. If we talk about medieval people, there was also someone called Christine de Pizon who became a writer which is a kind of idlerish job. So those options were kind of open. Well, there was the anchorite, Julian of Norwich, who was walled in for 40 years. And she was walled in at the end of her life, which I think was sort of mid-30s in those days. And most anchorites were presumed they'd, they'd live a couple of years once they'd been walled in. But she lived for about 40 years. And she wrote and thought and read. And I think she was the first woman to write in English, because before then people had only ever written in Latin, and she wrote the famous lines, all shall be well. Yeah, she definitely fits the bill, doesn't she? Mm. She does, yes. But it wasn't yes. much of a life. <laughs> I mean, no. um, she chose the, the anchorite life. I should say. She chose to be an anchorite, didn't she? She did, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. And it was a way for women to escape from 
maybe the drudgery of life, they had time in the patriarchy for themselves. Sort of thing. The only yeah. way, yeah. pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It does go back to the ancient world. It may not have been much fun, but the famous vessel virgins, much lampooned in Carry On Clio, did exist. The Temple of Vesta in Rome. It was an enforced seclusion, and they would enter, I think, at the age of eight. Yes. And they had to remain virgins within the temple, I think, for 30 years. Yes, but I'm not sure it was much fun, but it probably was pretty pretty idle. Well, another way was courtesan. Um, yeah. And that still happens in some countries around the world. So you, you have to sort of, let's call them Nell Gwyn types. They were some of them were highly educated, weren't they? Particularly they were, French they were Very highly educated. You know, it was, it, was a kind of, it was a bit of a job. But if you wanted to be Charles II's, you know, concubine or courtesan, you'd have to be very, very witty and very well-read and be fantastic company. So that was another sort of way of being a female idler. Yes, I mean, uh, the, great, the great barrier to idleness for women, of course, is children, isn't it? Mm. Famous pram in the hall. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yes. Um, if anything is um, likely to prevent any any sort contemplation of contemplation and, and the conscious of thought work. of any yeah, sense, it's, it's small <laughs> children. Yes, they're, they're very anti-idle. I can think of one great woman, ancient Greek idler, which is the Sibyl at Delphi, who I think had a pretty good job. So you'd trek across the whole of Greece to get a prediction about your life, and she'd live in her temple right in the heart of Delphi, with the words "Gnothi say out on know thyself above the lintel." And then she'd give often very cryptic predictions of what's happened in your life. And there is a theory, because it's written by earthquakes, that there was a crack in the ground. This sounds pretty fanciful. And a sort of gas would come up from below, and she'd be sort of deluded and give completely crazy predictions. But there she was, sitting around not doing very much, basically inhaling drugs. So that's quite a idler approach to life. Isn't I, it? I, I would also yeah. I would bring up um, the example of Mary Wollstonecraft and also her daughter Mary Shelley. So Mary Wollstonecraft... You know, he wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is uh, obviously a sort of feminist, you know, Hitemic. early feminist book. She was married to William Godwin, who was one of the first anarchists. And I like him. Uh, he wasn't exactly an idler, but he was very sort of hostile to, you know, governments for being violent and so on. And certainly a free thinker and a bohemian. We could actually mention um, Hipparchia and Crates. Crates was a cynic philosopher. You know, one of the philosophers he just like went around semi-naked and refused to get a job. And Hipparchia was his partner or wife. But Hipparchia was a sort of high-born girl. She was aristocratic. Her parents wanted her to get married to a sort of rich young man. She turned them all down for this horrible smelly old man with a beard <laughs> called Crates um, because she was in love with his philosophy, you know. And he actually tried to put her off marrying him. And said, um, look, I don't have anything. He took all his clothes off in front of her and her parents and said, this is, this is me, this is all I have. And she said, that's fine. <laughs> and um, they got married and then and, and they would dine out together. Now, that was very unusual in ancient Greece because it was mainly men who went to these symposiums. Yes. Uh, but she broke the rules. So they were like a, like a bohemian couple, almost like punks or something. We could see her as a proto-idler. And then Mary Wollstonecraft did the other way around. When she got married to William Godwin, she said, Mr. Godwin and I will dine out separately as before, because she didn't want to go around in a couple. Um, so that was really interesting. And, you know, she was a writer. William Blake did illustrations for her books. But, of course, she tragically died, having Mary Shelley. And then, but Mary Shelley was pretty wild. She ran away aged 18, had affairs with Shelley. You know, she wrote Frankenstein at 18. And then, and then she went on to have a very full literary life after all of that. So it was sort of possible. I mean, it does seem to me the Georgians were quite keen on the idea generally of languishing and idling generally, weren't they? I mean, if we think about the romantic poets. Yes, and the first, I've forgotten her name, Lady Venetian Montague or something like that, who set up the first blue stocking groups. And she had very, very rich, grand woman. Yes, in the literary salon, the literary yeah. hostess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, again, requiring money, obviously. Yeah, requires money, those Ottoline Morel sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. Think, and before that, late 18th century or early 19th, there were these 
Madame de Style, people like that, the, these sort of literary salonistas in Paris and France. But I think they might be perhaps a widow. I mean, that was another way into sort of independence for women, wasn't it, to, to be a widow. And then you would have your own money and you could sort of, like the wife of Bath, you could be sort of quite free. And have I a think... salon, never have to do the washing up after. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then more recently, just the modern idea of freedom. So I think they are quite remarkable, aren't they? The Mitford sisters, hardly educated at all. And I think Nancy Mitford is a sort of genius. Some of them are uh, right-wing nutters as well. But that was perhaps at the beginning of the 20th century. You had the freedom of these girls who education was looked down upon. But between themselves, I don't know, through some form of competition, they and were autodidacts, right. weren't they? And autodidacts. Yes. Yes. And yeah. also perhaps because of not being educated, but being naturally clever. And bored. They were free, and bored. They were free and wild and encouraged from that background to be funny, I think. But that's, that's the beginning of freedom. Their parents wouldn't have ideally wanted them to, to have this freedom and they would have been probably trapped at home like Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters a century mm-hmm. earlier but I think the beginning of modern freedom meant that you could begin to have those sort of female idlers with a lot of time on their hands which they then used well, you could either say productively the, the or disastrously. The same about Virginia Woolf and her sister Vanessa Bell whose parents died and they were left with means to and set up household separately which was extremely unusual then and were both actually well unbelievably productive in their different ways. It's called bohemianism really isn't it? And mm. There are different ways into it so inheriting money is one but you don't necessarily have to have money to be a bohemian and what about Muriel Spark for example? She was kind of a female idler I think. Um, I was thinking about idle characters in novels and it is quite tricky. I mean men again you can think of them. I was thinking about women. I came up with Lady Bertram in Mansfield Park. Remember her? She's the one who spends the entire novel on the sofa with a pug. With a pug. But she's, she's genuinely she's, idle. She's isn't she? idle in contemporary sense of idle. Mm. Lady, well, she's yes. not Tom's definition of idle. No, she's not productive. productive. She's, she's not remotely productive. Actually, idle. Ladies yes. of pleasure. Yes. Yes. It's the word, isn't it? It's the phrase. And all those sort of vaporish Victorian misses who <laughs> spent their well, days Well, that's on interesting because it became a sort of it was a Victorian thing for the newly wealthy industrialist to have a an idle wife. That was the first thing you did. So, for example, the people who started the Lions Coffee Houses when they started working in Whitechapel selling tobacco in the mid nineteenth century, everyone worked. The women, the whole family worked. As soon as they started making money, the women were told, "Oh, you don't have to work anymore. Here's your coach and six or whatever." There was this sort of cult of the collapsing woman. Women were actually sort of encouraged to be this sort of idle wife was actually I think the Georgian wife hadn't been particularly kind of idle that was a, that was a new Victorian late, late, yeah, yeah. very much a sort of Victorian thing yes they'd still be um, running the household they'd still be running in the Georgian times and that so was taken very now you had these women important. who were sort of lying around doing nothing and there's lots of paintings actually late Victorians of these women almost like sapphically passed out we had a piece in the idler years ago that <laughs> and it was called cult of the collapsing woman and um, and actually these awful victorian paterfamiliases got worried because they thought that the women were really when they were doing nothing they were indulging in solitary vices okay. and they invented to stop this habit they invented tennis <laughs> there's the famous scene at the beginning of Handful of Dust with the Diana Cooper character is it Mrs Stitch what she called yes sitting in bed but being incredibly active she's in very industrious it's a brilliant she? opening scene yeah. so she's organising a lunch to which the useless John Beaver is invited at the last moment but she's also organising her it's very like today's her interior decoration business and having a yes. gossip and it's all done in bed which is the way Diana Cooper lived all her life so I think that enforced idleness for rich people was there but if you were an actively minded, witty person, then you filled it with sometimes pointless social events, but also beginnings of doing work. And charity work, of course. Charity work. And while we're talking about WFB, 
working from bed, which is a practice that we endorse at the Idler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Winston Churchill, he worked from bed a Winston lot. Winston Churchill, he yeah. had a big sleep every afternoon. Yes. Well, the um, pandemic has meant a great many people work from bed. <laughs> well, probably the most noted was Florence Nightingale, because, you know, she went to bed for about 40 years. Is so that right? the Crimean War ended, and um, that, that was really, she was very young during the Crimean War. And then she retired to her bed and 56. just waged a, a sort of letter writing campaign, had like hundreds of campaigns, all done from bed. Not only that, but she was also worried herself about indulging in the solitary vice. Really? Do we have really? evidence for this? Yeah, if you, I do. In her diaries, it says, um, <laughs> it visited me again last night. When, oh, when will I be rid of this thing? So she wasn't, I would never call Florence Nightingale an idol, though. I mean, she was very busy in bed writing letters. Yes, that's it. Yes, so she was a Mrs. Stitch, wasn't she? Very much so. Oscar Wilde had things to say about idleness, didn't he? His characters, some of them were idle. With the Bumbriers. Yes, the being honest, the What's the quote about, do you smoke? Yes, I'm afraid, Lady Bracknell, I do smoke. I'm so glad uh, every young man needs an yes. occupation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the life. <laughs> but it was, for a while, it went deeper than that as well, because he was a massive fan of the ancient Greeks who we were discussing earlier. And his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, says, why does everyone want to work? I mean, you shouldn't ask people what do they do, you should ask people what they're thinking. When was it, 1890s he was writing, I suppose? You know, this sort of Victorian obsession with work as the meaning of uh, the centre of all life, he thought was wrong. And he spoke about the need to get the machines working for us. An intelligent society would gradually do less and less work. And that was a, a good political point, I think. He also had the confidence, didn't he, to work very hard, but only at things he found interesting. So there's an episode mm-hmm. where he was at Magdalen College, Oxford. He didn't come back for the beginning of term because he decided to go on a, a tour of Greece and Rome, age 20, 21, or whatever. And he was suspended or fined. He said this is the first time in history that somebody has been kicked out of Oxford or whatever the fine was while studying classics for yes. studying classics. <laughs> but that takes tremendous confidence, age 20, yes. 21, saying, I'm not, I'm not going to come back for the beginning of term. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and look at some Greek temples, I probably applied to Dr. Johnson as well, that thing of, I love reading so much that I couldn't care less what people tell me what to do. I'm thinking about J.K. Jerome as well, same sort of time, Three well, Men in the Boat. Yes, Three Men in the Boat. Personified, uh, he, surely. He, he also edited a magazine called The Idler. Indeed. Yeah, which is tell amazing. Us about so, that. Um, yeah. And we discovered this, I think I was on issue three, and a reader wrote in and said, did you know about Jerome K. Jerome's magazine? It ran from about... 20 years, I think, around 1900, 1905, 1910. It was a really, really heavy sort of magazine-y period. Punch is the most famous, obviously. It's quite funny. His idler has has some good columns. They have a, a column called Royal Pets, and they focus on the pugs or the corgis that the royals had at the time. There were short stories, you know, memoirs of, of, a, of a female nihilist sticks in the mind. Um, and it was very light and funny. Uh, they had a thing called the Idler's Club. Subject for conversation, nothing in particular. But each of the sort of wits who put the magazine together would have their say on a particular subject. And he, you know, he wrote Three Men in the Boat. He also wrote a book called Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow, which was a big hit. He was a great idler. He loved sitting around doing nothing. And it was an Edwardian sort of, it was funny, you know. And the riverboat loafing in Three Men in the Boat. Well, there was a new kind of leisure. So clerks could go out on the river. They were called the Aries and Ariats. Yes, it was a real social shift, that, wasn't it? It was a social shift. So so, they they would sit on the the banks of the River Thames reading Byron. These types are in um, E.M. Forster, aren't they? The sort of slightly social climbing, but with a bit of leisure and time. a lot of tennis in Howard's End, aren't they? Yeah, (laughs) Exactly, in Howard's End, yeah, yeah. yeah. Leonard Bast. um, Yes. And his books fall on him at the end, you know. This is a class who, before that, just idling was not possible, was it? But no, now, exactly, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. So there was this quite nice sense, I think, before the First World War, there was there, there was actually a sort of bit of an idling scene. 
And I think it yeah. goes on, and it's one of the nice things about sort of writing and editing is it does allow you to leave the office and go and do other things. And in fact, John Pearson wrote a brilliant book on the Cray twins called The Profession of Violence, who just died age 91. And his first job was working on the Atticus column on the Sunday Times under Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming was writing the Bond books. They hadn't completely taken off. And Ian Fleming, it says in this obituary, um, would spend most of the week while editing the Atticus column on the golf course and then would come in on a Thursday to tie things up. And you can do that. And golf may not have produced that many stories, yet it does in, in Goldfinger. But I think writers should go out and do other things. I used to think when I was hanging around in the London Library not doing very much, the only book I could have convincingly written about was about someone hanging around in the uh, London Library not doing very much. I think idleness or spare time allows you to go off either to play golf or shoot someone on a secret service in the Bahamas. But it's, it's good to have that leisure time to go and do some other stuff and meet some other people. Well, dialogue's a very important part of it, as Harry says. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking aloud, but Dr. Johnson said, well, his favourite philosopher or writer was um, Robert Burton, who wrote the, the great book about depression of the previous centuries, which is a massive bestseller, The Anatomy of Melancholy. People were really depressed, and it was Dr. Johnson's favourite book. Well, in one of Burton's remedies for melancholy, he said, uh, be not solitary, be not idle. Okay, so we might think, oh, so don't be idle because, you know, when you're idle, you start brooding. So idleness can actually a little bit be a little bit close to something like melancholy, which Dr. Johnson suffered from. You know, he was very depressed. But he adapted that and said, when idle, be not solitary. When solitary, be not idle. So your idleness, as Harry said, should be done with other people, chatting and fun and, you know. And when, when, if you're on your own, just work. <laughs> yeah, I came up with someone yesterday who I think fits the bill and that, a literary character, and that's Mycroft Holmes. Yes. Sherlock Holmes, well, large his, brother his, who yeah. never goes anywhere, and but his, is astonishingly club, clever. Wasn't his club the Diogenes? The Diogenes club. They're not allowed to talk. Opposite his flat. They're yes. not allowed to talk. Yeah. Yes, actually, it's yeah. reverse of what you were saying. It's right. The Diogenes. Because Diogenes was the ultimate idler. He was. I mean, he rejected all work and all activity of any sort. What do you need? I just need this barrel and a. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, he probably lived in a barrel. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And often, Mycroft is obviously even more intelligent than Sherlock Holmes, and I yes. think it's it's true in real life quite often ask people what happened to the cleverest person they were at school with. And almost always they remained incredibly clever, but they weren't built for the real world. And they sometimes have a sad breakdown or don't do very much at all, but they tend not to become leader of the free world. They're working on a higher level and they're sitting in the Diogenes Club. But Mycroft sat at the heart of government, didn't he? I think that was the idea that nothing happened in Britain. Without Mycroft's say so, he had a no no job title, but he was at the, the spider at the centre of the weather. He was the most powerful man in the country. Was I was yeah. really into this yesterday, but actually on the idleness front, there's a nice quote in one of the books. It says, "Mycroft has no ambition and no energy. He will not even go out of his way to verify his own solutions, and would rather be considered wrong than take the trouble to prove himself right." <laughs> and that did funny. seem to me to be the definition. Wow, that's a thing. very, very good it's one. It's a nice yeah. one. I've got that in the magazine. I haven't come across it. <laughs> I've always had a bit of a soft spot for, for him. Also, yeah. Going back to females, you, you came across another great literary idler. Oh, is that Aunt Ada Doom? Aunt Ada Doom in, in Cold Comfort, Comfort Farm. Farm. Who does nothing? There's something nasty all day. in the woodshed. Yes, yeah. exactly. And she yeah. just sits in her room and eats colossal meals. Yeah. So when she was little girl, she saw something nasty she in the woodshed. She saw something in the woodshed and, and she then retired, retired her room. To her bed. Oh, <laughs> controls yeah. the family. I was struggling on the women front. And actually, it's a lovely book, isn't it? But I'm not sure. I don't have many others in, in, in around that time. Do we have any other thoughts for. I, yeah. I think, I think yeah. Simone de Beauvoir might count as one, you know. Really? Yeah, because um, she, she absolutely hated housework. You know, she said that like, housework is this horrific thing, like the myth of Sisyphus, and it's never done. It's I'm never sorry, over. are we saying if women don't do housework, they're idle? 
Well, what? I'm just saying that he didn't like any sort of work, really. He was disinclined to labour. So, you, you can mention Quentin Crisp as well, who... Oh, uh, yeah, well, Quentin Crisp... Mm, after the, three yeah. years, the dust never gets any thicker, yeah. Do we, do we have any more? Shall I be wondering about this, the view of some authors? I mean, you, Tom, you present a very benign view of idling, but you have someone like Scott Fitzgerald and his idle rich. It was seen as extremely corrupting, wasn't it? And those characters gradually disintegrated. That's a good point. Yeah, idling is a negative. Well, that's one of our problems at the idler, because people say, oh, well, I can't afford to be idle, because of this phrase, the idle rich, which meant the sponges, didn't it? I mean, but that's not really my idea of idling, because those idle rich, their idleness is built on the backs of... The backs of the workers, ...slavery and the toil of the workers (laughs) and untold suffering, or the fact that their great-great-great-grandfather killed a lot of people and was friendly with Henry VIII. Um, But a character like Gatsby has aspired to the idling classes, hasn't he? And then it ruins him. And it's, it's odd to think of Fitzgerald as a sort of moral writer because but he's having that's a reaction to, to the First World War that, that to have a good time to forget what had happened. And that's having a good time is not the same as idling. Yeah. yeah. He's also great yeah. on how it catches up on you. So, in, you know, in yeah. Roaring Twenties in New York, and in, if you're in your Twenties, what a fantastic time you're having. There's a great mm. line in one of the books where it says, you know, at 29, you can be an organ grinder. It's fantastic, so excited, you get to play with the monkey, you've got your freedom. And then at 30, you're an organ grinder, full stop, and pretty miserable mm. job. Mm. And so he's brilliant on how it all catches up on you and the price to pay for those glorious, drunken 20s. So we're essentially drawing a distinction between lazy and idle. Lazy is unproductive and idle is potentially productive. Well, that's, when we started the magazine, I thought it was such a lovely word. And as I said, I got it from Dr. Johnson's essay, The Idler. It did seem to be a little less negative than just laziness or giving up. You know, I think laziness is a bit closer to the deadly sin of sloth. Yes. Which was originally called acidia or exedia, acedia or something like that in Greek, which I think means sadness, actually, or depression. And it was about monks who'd given up, like, like you know, oh, no, I can't get, I'm not going to get out of bed. There's no, no point praising God. I'm going to give up, you know. <laughs> like a sort of spiritual laziness, you know, sort of giving up on life. So my idea of idleness wasn't giving up on life. It was really sort of participating in life and recognising that I think a lot of people do have a, this sort of physical attraction to laziness which is actually quite good you know we should indulge it a little bit more not that you're lazy all the time but that you you recognize that something like laziness or idleness is is actually very good for your physical and mental health it's good for your creativity but no yes it's a bit different from laziness in the sense of giving up it's been a great discussion thank you both very much indeed i hope you didn't find it too tiring (laughs) (laughs) a little sleep gotta go and have a nap now well actually i'm hoping you both sit tight and give us a book recommendation that you can stay up right long enough Slightly Foxed is a publishing house based in East London. It was founded by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood. The team began publishing a quarterly magazine about all those great books on publishers' backlists that can be so hard to find in bookshops. They also reissue out-of-print books they think deserve a new generation of readers. Everything they publish is beautifully produced, from their pocket-sized cloth-bound hardbacks to illustrated collectible editions for children. Posted out to subscribers in 80 countries, the magazine itself is a collection of readable and entertaining articles about all sorts of books, fiction and non-fiction. The contributors are equally varied. Some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics, while others come from very different walks of life. Now, after 17 years, the Fox team still love finding new readers. So the annual subscription to the magazine is very reasonably priced. Even better, 
Your subscription gives you free access to the searchable digital archive. Sign up for an annual subscription at foxcourtly.com or if you'd rather speak to a person, give the London office a call on 020-7033-0258. Thank you. Right, book recommendations now. Harry, do you want to uh, start us off? I thought a fantastic book. One of the great schoolboy idlers, my hero, Nigel Molesworth of St Custard's. This book went a bit unreported last year. They discovered the wartime diaries of Molesworth, which the original series in Punch that Geoffrey Willans had written before the immortal Ronald Searle added the drawings to some later um, Willans writings. But they're fantastic, and it's the beginning of Molesworth and his whole attitude to life I admire, particularly when people annoy me. I discard them. I discard <laughs> discard them with a K. So that's the wartime diaries of Nigel Molesworth. They're fantastic. So, Steph, what have you got for us? Well, I think when I was last on the podcast, I had just finished Laurie Lee's As I Walked Out One Midsummer yeah. Morning. And I so enjoyed that. I went on to read a bit more about the Spanish Civil War. So I read Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, uh-huh. which I had read years ago, but reread it. And I've just read Gamal Wolseley's Deaths of a Kingdom, which is an Eland book. She was married to Gerald Brennan, who was one of the Bloomsbury group, or sort of on the edge of the Bloomsbury group. And they lived in Malaga in the mid-30s and were there just as Malaga went up in flames. And it's a wonderful evocation of a, a Spanish rural village and the horrors of the, the Spanish Civil War. And they are right there. They decide to stay. Their sympathies are with the left, but they end up sheltering one of the aristocratic families because then, if you were English and flew an English flag above your house, it probably wouldn't be torched. They secretly walk through the hills to visit other English and American friends who are in the small village of Torremolinos. <laughs> it's just an extraordinary first-hand account of being there as it started. And I think she's the only female writer to have written about the Spanish Civil War. And I'd really recommend it. She's not always the most easy of characters, but it's very direct, very honest, an incredible portrait of the villagers and of those people caught up at the time. It's interesting. As you say, I don't know of another female account. Tom, (laughs) what have you got for us? I'd like to talk about Thomas Love Peacock. Not that well known now, but his first book, I think, was 1818. And he was a friend of people like Shelley and and also the sort of industrialists of the day. He did a kind of reverse idler thing. You know, quite often in the magazine, we do a profile of someone who quit their so-called boring job and did what they wanted to do. He did it the other way around. He wrote these amazing novels when he was young. And then he got a job at the East India Company on a pretty fantastic salary. (laughs) And he was there for 20 or 30 years. But he wrote a funny poem about arriving at 11, falling asleep at noon. So even within that, you know, he was quite an idler. But these books, Nightmare Abbey and Crotchet Castle, are two examples. They're really funny. I don't know how he described them, really, but they're they're sort of collections of exaggerated versions of literary types of the time. So there's a Byron character in there. There's a Mary Shelley character in there. There's an old butler called Ray and another one called Crow, who are incredibly miserable. And there's a miserable young man who keeps retiring to his tower, like Montaigne. <laughs> and, and sometimes he suddenly flips into dialogue like a play. And it's just really funny. There's an amazing idler character called the Honourable Mr. Listless, who has a, a, a butler called Fatou. And 
Fatou has to remember everything that Mr. L- so Mr. Little says, Fatou, Fatou, come in. Fatou, what do I think about, you know, something like, you know, <laughs> Christian women? Oh, well, last time. Oh, yes, that's right. Go away, Fatou. And this like kind of philosophical conversation thing. He was Aldous Huxley's great inspiration for early novels like Chrome Yellow. Ah. Uh-huh. They're, they're really readable. They're 100 pages each. The name again? Thomas Love Peacock. And uh, as far as contemporary stuff goes, I'm reading the David Graeber, David Wengro book called The Dawn of Everything. David Graeber died a couple of years ago. He was only 59 and he was a professor at LSE, professor of anthropology. He wrote some brilliant books. He wrote a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Another book called Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. (laughs) About his theory that a lot of people are stuck in jobs which are sort of quite well paid but ultimately meaningless. Mm -hmm. He himself was working class Jew from New York. He became part of things like the Occupy movement and he was the only sort of anarchist anthropologist. Uh, Anyway, his essential idea is, um, we could say, the opposite of someone like Steven Pinker. Things have been gradually getting better in the world. It's called the progressive narrative or something like that. And in the past, Thomas Hobbes would have said, you know, we were stupid and unsophisticated and life was nasty, British in short. Through Wengro, his partner, and, and David Graeber's anthropology and archaeology, they, they create a completely different story and show that there were these very, very sophisticated societies five, ten thousand years ago, all sorts of different forms of government, quite egalitarian governments or, or not. They attack the notion that one day we were hunter-gatherers and then we became farmers and then this happened. And, you know, things are much, much more complicated than that. And, and they, they go back into the Aztecs and the Incas. It's just Nicholas Taleb said it's a feast and it, it is a real feast. So I thoroughly recommend that. Gail. Something radically different. It's a book called The Strays of Paris by Jane Smiley, who's best known for her novel um, A Thousand Acres, which is based mm. on King Lear. The Strays of Paris is a sort of, it's a fable. It's about a racehorse called Paras who manages to escape her stall and crosses the Bois de Boulogne and ends up in central Paris. And she meets a German pointer called Frida and a raven called Raoul. And they live in the gardens round the Eiffel Tower and they help each other. And it's a book about friendship and love. The dog begs for food at the local grocer's The local baker feeds the horse oats. Nobody really sort of questions why these animals are roving around without any owners. And the park keeper notices, you know, there's some horse dung around and he admires the horse but doesn't report it to the authorities. And they become befriended by a little boy who lives with his grandmother, who's nearly 100, in a house full of treasures. And the horse goes to live in the house and remains undetected by the grandmother, who is blind, so there is a reason for that. <laughs> so this isn't magic realism? It, it's just, they're in plain sight, these animals, but nobody notices them. And they bond, they form a friendship. There are a couple of mallards called Nancy and Sid, who are pretty stupid. <laughs> That's quite funny. And in the end, the grandmother dies, and the little boy is taken in. But it's charmingly written, lovely descriptions of Paris at night. It's just so gentle, and it's in a beautiful hardback edition by Macmillan with some lovely illustrations. Just a nice, comforting read. And the title again? The Strays of Paris. That is it for this month. Um, I have to say, the fox ladies are looking fresh as daisies. I can't speak for the guests, but Harry, Todd, many thanks. Thank you. For being with us and exerting yourselves. It's been great to have you with us. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much. much. We'll be back in February. Uh, Please do join us for that one. In the meantime... You'll find all the books and writers we mentioned in the show notes. Foxcourty.com is the web address as ever. Until next month, thanks for listening and for joining us for another literary trek off the beaten track. (laughs) 